This is Space Time Series 22, Episode 73, for broadcast on the 9th of October 2019. Coming up on Space Time, the Andromeda Galaxy's violent history, new debate on the true age of Saturn's rings, and NASA's new Orion spacecraft moves a step closer to fruition. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have pieced together the catabolistic history of our nearest large neighbouring galaxy, Andromeda, which has now set its sights on the Milky Way as its next main course. A report in the journal Nature claims Andromeda, also known as Messier or M31, has undergone at least two major galactic collisions since its birth and is now barreling towards its next victim, the Milky Way, with impact expected between 3.7 and 4 billion years from now. The study's lead authors, Professor Grant Lewis from the University of Sydney and Dr. Dougal McKay from the Australian National University, found that Andromeda has eaten several small galaxies within the last few billion years based on the leftover stellar streams in its galactic halo. The authors also found traces of more smaller galaxies that Andromeda gobbled up even earlier, perhaps as far back as 10 billion years ago. The new study, known as PANDAS, short for Pan-Andromeda Archaeological Survey, has allowed scientists to better understand the way our own galaxy, the Milky Way, has grown and evolved over billions of years. See, studying the Milky Way can be difficult because we're in the middle of it. It's a bit like trying to understand a full forest when the trees surrounding you get in the way. So, studying a larger, nearby galaxy, which is similar in general form and description to the Milky Way, in this case Andromeda, provides a great laboratory subject. Andromeda has a much larger and more complex stellar halo than the Milky Way, which indicates that it's cannibalized many more galaxies, possibly larger ones. The signs of ancient feasting are written in the stars orbiting Andromeda, with the team studying dense groups of stars known as globular clusters to reveal the giant spiral galaxies past. By tracing the remains of these smaller galaxies with their embedded star clusters, the authors were able to recreate the way Andromeda drew them in and ultimately enveloped them at different times. But the new findings have presented astronomers with several new mysteries, including the detection of two very different and distinct bouts of galactic mergers, each of which came from a completely different direction. Geraint Lewis describes the discovery as quite weird. He suggests that the extragalactic meals are being fed from the cosmic web of filaments and strands of galaxies, galaxy clusters and superclusters that make up the large-scale structure of the universe. More surprising was the discovery that the direction of this ancient feeding is the same as the bizarre plane of satellites, an unexpected alignment of dwarf galaxies orbiting Andromeda. Lewis and McKay were part of the team that had previously discovered that these planes were fragile and rapidly destroyed by Andromeda's gravity within just a few billion years. Lewis says that only deepens the mystery as this plane of satellites must be young, but yet it appears to be aligned with the ancient feeding of dwarf galaxies. He speculates this could all be due to the large-scale cosmic web-like structure of space. Yes, so this is a new result that we just had published in Nature. Essentially, this is a 20 years' worth of work has got us to this point. And what we've been doing is mapping out the outer region of the Andromeda galaxy. So way beyond where we see the stellar disk, there's this halo of stars. And within that halo, we expect there to be the fossil records of the things that have fallen in and been consumed, been cannibalized by Andromeda. So 
what this new research did is it actually looked at a subset of objective globular clusters, and we've been able to measure their speed by using things like the Keck telescope and the Gemini telescope. And by looking at their speed, what we found is that there are two distinct populations, one which appears to come from things that fell in you know, roughly 3 billion years ago, which is relatively recently, and one which is like a more ancient event when things fell in somewhere around 7 billion years ago. That's getting close to when the galaxies would have started forming, isn't it? I mean, they would have formed, what, 13 billion years ago, but 7 brings yeah. us closer to that point. Yeah, yeah, so, so the, this, this initial feeding binge was when Andromeda was relatively young. It would have been a few billion years old, and then it looks like it went through this sort of quietish period, and then there was another infall of material much more recently. And how do you know that these stars, these stellar streams, came from other galaxies? Is it simply their course through Andromeda? Yes. Yeah. So when we look in the, in the outer regions of Andromeda, there are lots of stars there, and lots of them are coherent. They're together. They're in large chunks and shreds and streams. And what they are, they are little dwarf galaxies which are currently being disrupted. We can work out how much mass they have. And so if we put them all back together, it would be a relatively small galaxy. And so we can actually see the ones that fell in roughly 3 billion years ago. We can still see the sort of traces of them today. Whereas in the ones that fell in many billions of years ago, their stars have been completely disrupted and all we've got is the globular clusters left. And these are moving in a slightly different direction to the general rotation of the galaxy. Well, what we found is that the two populations of globular clusters we've identified, they're actually rotating at 90 degrees to one another. Oh, wow. And, and neither of them is actually rotating in the same way as the galaxy. So everything's a bit offset and skew with here. So that's interesting in its own right. Even more surprising was the rather bizarre plane of satellites. Tell me about this. Oh, yeah. So that's something that we discovered back in 2014. Similar kind of thing. We've been mapping out the, the dwarf galaxies and measuring their velocities. And we found that, you know, there's roughly 30 odd dwarf galaxies in the outer part of Andromeda. We measured their speed, but we found that roughly half of that population was confined to be in a, a flattish kind of plane, all rotating in the same sense which is something you don't really expect when you look at our theoretical ideas of how galaxies form. Are you expecting to rain in from lots of different directions and that there shouldn't really be this coherent motion? But we found this very, very distinct signature. And what's really bizarre from our new results is that the old accretion event is basically spinning in the same sense and orientation as this plane of satellites. Now, the plane of satellites has to be a relatively new thing. They can't last very long. They get disrupted by all the gravitational pulls. So we have these two things, one seemingly ancient, one seemingly quite recent, and they are aligned and doing the same thing. So we don't know if that's telling us something profound or it's just a coincidence. So we've got to work that one out. How does that compare with the Milky Way? Does it have its own plane of satellites or are things in the Milky Way pretty well all over the place? No, no. Sagittarius dwarf in one area, large and small Magellanic clouds in another. So there is a preferred sort of set of orbits in the Milky Way as well. So this is this is one of the things that is, is really bothersome about the, the local universe is that the Milky Way and Andromeda, when you look on the small scale, they don't agree with the sort of overall kind of picture you would expect from, you know, galaxies growing over time from just accretion of random things. So these coherent motions, the, the one we've got in, our, in the Milky Way, and now the ones that we've seen in Andromeda, um, there's a tension there. I wouldn't say that it's a giant challenge to 
our ideas, but there's a tension there that doesn't fit in our simple pictures. So as it's probably telling us we're missing something wrong with our ideas of galaxy evolution. But for some people, this is sort of evidence that we are missing something fundamental about sort of the way gravity works or something like that. These are the Mons people, right? Or the way dark matter works, maybe. Exactly. Exactly. So there's some that say that what's missing is something in the recipes of galaxy evolution. And others saying, oh, actually, we need to go deeper. And there's something wrong with the way that we understand that the universe works, be it the properties of dark matter or be it even the way that gravity works itself. Of course, we're in a local group of galaxies with the Milky Way and Andromeda, the two largest members. But that local group is part of a larger cluster, which is part of a larger supercluster, Laniakea. Yeah. There must be all sorts of dynamics going on there which need to be accounted for as well. Plus, you've got the local void nearby as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. so this is one of the things that we need to untangle. We, we know we have this cosmic web, and we know that material tends to flow along the cosmic web, so into clusters along filaments out the void. And what we know, want to know is, is you know, the coherent structures we're seeing inside galaxies, are they aligned with the cosmic web, or does it look like they were fed from the cosmic web? Or are they not? Is it either they come from somewhere else? So, again, you know, it's a jigsaw and we haven't finished it yet. All this is important because, well, let's face it, the Milky Way and Andromeda are, are going to become awfully close buddies in the next, what, 3.7 to 4 billion years' time. Exactly. They're hurtling towards each other. And so while we know the Milky Way and Andromeda have been eating smaller galaxies and they've been growing, they win that fight. Now, in about, as you said, in around 4 billion years, it's going to be a tussle between the big guys in the local group. And that's going to be rather ugly because, you know, that's going to be a train wreck of a galaxy collision. So that's going to basically destroy the beautiful spirals that we have in, our, in, in the Milky Way and have in Andromeda. They'll be basically ripped apart by the gravity and the collision. And what will be left over after the collision will be this featureless elliptical galaxy. So all of the lovely structure we see will be gone. And that happens just a billion years before the sun gets too big for its britches as well and becomes a red giant. Yes, that's right. Now, there's all this similar kind of time scale, right? Four to five billion years. The sun will have exhausted all the hydrogen in its core. It'll get into that sort of serious old age that it's going to be facing and become a red giant. And that, you know, that will definitely be the end of the solar system as we know, because the Earth will be eventually swallowed up in the fiery atmosphere of the sun. Interesting times ahead of us. We do, we do. And look, it tells us, of course, that if, if, uh, if life on this planet wants to exist in a long-term universe, it's going to have to find a way off, because, you know, the sun's only got a finite lifetime. How did you do the work? So this is part of a, a big international collaboration we've had going now for a number of years. So there's myself and a few colleagues in Australia, and then colleagues in North America and in Europe. And to do this work, we've needed to use some of the world's premier facilities, the Canada-France Hawaii Telescope is key, also the 10 meter Keck and the Gemini Telescope too. So through this collaboration, we've been able to put together a superb data set and from that ex extract some excellent science. That's Professor Grant Lewis from Sydney University. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. Astronomers have reignited debate about the age of Saturn's rings, with a new study that dates the rings as most likely having formed early in the solar system's history. A report in the journal Nature Astronomy hypothesizes that processes that preferentially eject dust and organic material out of Saturn's rings could be making the rings look much younger than they actually are. The Cassini spacecrafts dive through Saturn's rings during the mission's grand finale in 2017 provided astronomers with data that was interpreted as evidence that Saturn's rings formed just a few tens of millions of years ago, around the same time as dinosaurs walked on the Earth. 
Gravity measurements taken during the dive gave a more accurate estimate of the mass of the rings, which are made up of some 95% water ice and less than 5% rocks, organic materials and metals. That mass estimate was then used to work out how long the pristine ice of the rings would need to be exposed to dust and micrometeorites to reach the level of the other pollutants seen in the rings today. Southwest Research Institute scientist Luke Doan says the common argument is that the rings, if much older, would have been much more polluted because of all the meteoroids crashing into them. See, studies had suggested the rings would have absorbed portions of dark, dusty material from the meteoroids and gradually become darker and darker over time. Therefore, the rings are simply too bright and too clean to have existed in the solar system for billions of years. Because scientists can't directly measure the age of Saturn's rings, like the rings of a tree stump, they've deduced the age from other properties, like mass and chemical composition. The studies have made the assumption that the dust flow onto the rings is constant, the mass of the rings is also constant, and that the rings retain all the pollution material that they've received. However, Doans and colleagues say there's still a lot of uncertainty about all these points, and when taken together with other results from the Cassini mission, they believe there's a strong case for the rings being much older. Doans and colleagues argue that the mass measured during the Cassini mission grand finale is an extraordinarily good agreement with models for the dynamic evolution of massive rings dating back to the primordial solar system. Saturn's rings are made up of particles, blocks and boulders, ranging in size from metres down to micrometres. And viscous interactions between the blocks cause the rings to spread out and carry material away like a conveyor belt. This leads to mass loss from the innermost edge, where particles fall onto the planet, and from the outermost edge, where materials cross the outer boundary into a region where moonlets and satellites start to form. Dan says more massive rings would spread more rapidly and lose mass faster. His models claim that whatever the initial mass of the rings, there's a tendency for the rings to converge onto a mass measured by Cassini after around 4 billion years, thereby matching the timescale for the 4.6 billion year formation period of the solar system. See, the thing is, results from Cassini's cosmic dust analyzer show that some 600 kilograms of silicate grains fall onto Saturn from the rings every second. And other studies using data from Cassini's ion and neutral mass spectrometer have shown the presence of organic molecules in Saturn's upper atmosphere that are also thought to have been derived from the rings. The authors claim the results suggest the rings are cleaning themselves of pollutants. Mind you, they admit they can't explain what the nature of this potential ring cleaning process actually is. However, the authors insist that if the hypothesis is correct, it means the exposure age is not necessarily linked to the formation age, and so the rings would appear to be artificially young. Needless to say, the hypothesis and the conclusion it draws has been an issue of intense debate. I'm Stuart Gary. You're listening to Space Time. NASA's carried out a successful test of its new Orion Capsule's launch abort system. The system is designed to safely fly the Orion Capsule and its crew away from an explosion or launch vehicle failure during the ascent phase of a mission. The successful test from Space Launch Complex 46 of the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida has moved NASA a step closer to its first Artemis flight carrying people to the moon in 2024. Now, the test of these motors is a high-flying, fast-paced trial without any crew aboard, and it all begins with the launch of a test booster that will send the abort system and the Orion test articles six miles up into the sky. At the top is the launch abort system. At the bottom is the abort test booster, a solid rocket motor enclosed with an aeroshell built out to the width of the test Orion crew module above it. 
engineers want to test the abort system while it's in flight, so the booster will propel the 46,000-pound Orion test article to a speed over Mach 1, about 800 miles per hour. 55 seconds after launch, and at an altitude of 31,000 feet, the abort sequence begins. With a lift of 400,000 pounds of thrust, the abort motor will pull the test Orion away from the booster, propelling it more than two miles in just 15 seconds. At 43,000 feet, the attitude control motor at the top will position the capsule to prepare for the safe separation of the crew module. At 44,000 feet, the jettison motor fires. As the test article falls, 12 electronic data recorders will repeatedly write and back up the test data until they are jettisoned from Orion and will later be recovered by boat. Orion will enable humans to pioneer farther into the solar system and continue our journey to Mars. Mark Kirisich, Orion program manager, explains why Orion is a key element of NASA's plan to return people to the surface of the moon by 2024. I'm Mark Kirisich, manager of NASA's Orion Human Spacecraft Program. Fifty years ago, NASA was preparing to launch Apollo 11, the mission that took people to the surface of the moon for the very first time. Today, we continue progress on our generation's human space exploration program with a major milestone in Orion, our ascent abort flight test. Orion is a key element of NASA's plan to return people to the surface of the moon by 2024. Taking people this far into deep space is no easy task, and Orion's team has incorporated many safety features into our design, which protect our astronauts and minimize risk during their journey. Today's test will demonstrate one of those systems, the launch abort system. This system protects the astronauts during the first part of their flight, and today we're going to test it under some of the most demanding conditions Orion will ever see during ascent. While we're out here on the test range today, we also have hardware and software and manufacturing and assembly and test at factories and labs around the world. For example, just a few miles up the road from here is the Armstrong Operations and Checkout Facility, Orion's final assembly factory. If we walked into the ONC building today, we would see a beehive of activity as the Artemis One crew module and service module are nearing completion. We're also well underway with manufacturing of the Artemis II crew module and service module, both here in the U.S. as well as in factories in Europe. And we're initiating long leap procurement for our Artemis III vehicles. We have a lot going on. And while we're doing all this, we're also working with our partners from the Space Launch System, Exploration Ground System, and Gateway programs as they make similar progress on their march to first flight. Now, the next time the full launch abort system flies, astronauts will be on board. Today's test lets us make sure the launch abort system performs as we expect it to during our climb to space. Astronaut Randy Bresnik now will tell us what he'll be watching for during this critical flight. It's amazing to think about flying on Orion and every current astronaut and every future astronaut that's looking at Orion and our, our effort to go back to the moon by 2024 is exceptionally excited at the opportunity to fly on Orion. To take humans beyond low Earth orbit, the Van Allen radiation belts, and transverse 250,000 miles to the moon is very exciting. 
and you think of the most dynamic and probably some of the most uh, difficult, dangerous parts of the mission are really just get in and out of the, the atmosphere here on Earth. And so that's where Orion is going to be flying, and that's why this launch abort system that we have is so important, because it allows us that safety measure, that backup system, in case there's any problem with our, with our launch rocket. So the real purpose of this test is to prove that the system works, right? And why does it need to work? Because you've got the world's largest rocket ever made by humans, the SLS, the Space Launch System. And for a vehicle that has a problem, that rocket, if there's an explosion or some other type of vehicle anomaly, this launch abortion has to be able to outrun the most powerful rocket ever built by humans. So it has to be exceptionally powerful. And it is unique that it is the most powerful and the fastest accelerating abort system motor ever tested. Just a few seconds now, we're going to get the final launch authorization poll, which is going to happen right now. Let's listen in. 30 seconds and counting. CLC requesting final authorization for launch. All stations report go. LD. LD go. Rock. LDA is issued clear to launch. Copy that. TC. FTA is go for pyro arming. Proceeding. PCC at the power control console fail safe switch. Verify. Ground ordinance is green. PCC enable ground ordinance. Ground ordinance enabled. DM, verify ODM bus voltage enabled. ODM voltage enabled. PCC, verify PLO power is go. PLO power is go. And so what we're listening to now is they switch the vehicle from external to internal power and get the flight computer ready? That's that's what's happening next. Yes. Okay. And so everything's going to proceed well with there. We're going to listen in as they get this flight vehicle ready to go. FTA pyros are armed. Auto sequencer enabled. And all stations were currently complete through step 84 of the ATB final launch check. Standing by step 85 at T minus four minutes. All right, and so the count proceeds. Everything's good to go. We are T minus four minutes until launch. Let's talk about once we hit T zero, the expectations for what we'll get in the plus count as it goes up. So during the plus count, we'll hear the flight test article, guidance, navigation, and control operator call out key milestones. We'll listen for the vehicle's altitudes and speeds, and he'll call out uh, when the abort has occurred and the phases of the abort. We'll also hear the test conductor call out the data rebroadcast of the telemetry and the end of the flight test. There are no parachutes for the Orion test article, and that's intentional. Right. Explain that really quick. So the parachutes have been through a very robust test uh, program. We've had 49 drop tests, an extensive ground test program, and two end-to-end tests on Exploration Flight Test 1 and Pad Abort 1. Since AE2 wasn't going to be a stressing case for the parachutes, they decided they weren't needed. All right. And so the Orion test article will fall to the ocean and will sink after the test is complete. We're going to listen in as the launch conductor continues to uh, work this launch with his crew. VM verify flight computer auto sequencer started. Auto sequencer started. Minus two minute limit checks are go. Limit checks are go. PCC set arm enable. Arm enabled. PCC arm TVA gas generator AD. AD switch armed. PCC arm stage one ignition SNA. SNA armed. TC confirm launch timer clock is running. Launch timer clock is running. The three minute test called Ascent Abort 2 involved a test version of the Orion capsule launched on a modified P Peacekeeper Intercontinental Ballistic Missile First Stage to an altitude of 9,500 meters or 31,000 feet. The end is go for launch. Copy that. Five, four, three, two, one, ignition. Launch vehicle is carrying the AA2 launch abort system for a full stress test, 15,000 feet. Seconds, we will see the abort. Abort initiation. 
The launch abort system mounted on top of the capsule was triggered 55 seconds after liftoff, firing its powerful launch motor rocket to pull the capsule away from the launch vehicle. Good control. In just 15 seconds, the capsule had gained over 3 kilometres separation from the launch vehicle. The launch abort system then fired its attitude control engine, flipping the capsule end over end and repositioning it for descent. Finally, the jettison motor fired, releasing the capsule from its protective fairing, allowing it to fall down into the sea. Pyros 3 and 4 discharge both sides. Good power enabled. So there goes the LAS tumbling a bit, Orion coming down. Started Everything data looking good so far. Recall there are no parachutes on this test day, so once the data recorders have been deployed and the vehicle is no longer transmitting data, TC will call test complete. Of course, in a real-life situation, the capture would have deployed parachutes, allowing it to safely descend to a splashdown in the Atlantic Ocean. The launch abort system, or escape tower as it's colloquially called, actually consists of two parts. There's the fairing assembly, which is a lightweight composite shell encapsulating and protecting the Orion capsule from the heat, airflow and acoustics of the launch, ascent and, if needed, the abort manoeuvres. And there's the launch abort tower, which includes three solid rocket motors, an abort motor, an attitude control motor and jettison motor. Orion will fly aboard NASA's new SLS rocket, taking crew on missions to the moon and eventually Mars and beyond. However, while the development of both the Orion capsule by Lockheed Martin and its Orion service module by Airbus are proceeding smoothly, development of the SLS itself is still running into big problems at Boeing. The Orion and SLS were supposed to launch together for the first time back in 2017, but that maiden flight's been consistently pushed back and is now slated for no earlier than June 2020. And even that date isn't certain. The delays seem to centre around modifying the structure of the original Space Shuttle external fuel tank, which is acting as the core stage for the SLS rocket. It had to be redesigned to act as a supporting structure for the entire SLS stack. That includes the four Space Shuttle main engines at the bottom of the stack, the twin external solid rocket boosters, based on the Space Shuttles but bigger, located on each side, and the new upper stage and Orion capsule and service module mounted at the top. The delays are so serious, NASA is now seriously considering using commercial launches instead to fly Orion and its service module on its scheduled Exploration Mission 1, an unmanned test flight around the moon slated for next year. As to who's likely to get the gig, well, certainly SpaceX's Falcon Heavy would be a contender, but so too would the United Launch Alliance Delta IV Heavy. NASA relied on a Delta IV Heavy to fly Orion on its orbital validation test flight back in 2014. But Exploration Mission 1 would require two launches, one carrying the Orion crew and service modules. The crew module weighs 10 tonnes, the service module 15, so that's 25 tonnes there alone. And another to carry the upper stage, which for the first few missions would be converted Delta IV upper stage. The two elements would then dock in orbit before proceeding on the journey to the moon. The need for two launches is simply because no existing rocket is capable of lifting both elements together. That's the whole reason NASA needed to develop the SLS in the first place. If the SLS does miss Exploration Mission 1, its first flight in Orion wouldn't then be until 2023 on Exploration Mission 2, which will be the first designed to carry astronauts, taking them on a nine-day mission around the moon and back. But before all that can happen, the SLS will need to undertake several unmanned test flights. I'm Stuart Gary. This is Space Time.
It's getting crowded aboard the International Space Station, with the usual six-person crew temporarily boosted to nine, following the arrival of the Soyuz capsule carrying three new cosmonauts. The Expedition 61 crew were launched aboard a Soyuz FG rocket from the Baikonur Cosmodrome of the Central Asian Republic of Kazakhstan on a four-orbit fast rendezvous flight, docking with the International Space Station's Vesda module just six hours after launch. All the cockpit displays inside the Soyuz are lit up and ready for cosmonaut Alex Kropochka uh, to keep an eye on during today's flight. All the onboard systems are switched over to onboard control, continuing to march down two minutes, 40 seconds away from liftoff. Two large umbilical towers or arms kind of connected to the rocket still. Uh, the taller one is the first umbilical tower. That'll separate the booster and that'll initiate auto sequence start. That coming right at around T minus 35 seconds. The smaller umbilical detach, it, that means we are 15 seconds away from launch. One minute and counting. One minute to lift off contact. Copy. Everything is fine on board. We're feeling well and we're ready for launch. Copy. Vehicle to internal power. And at first umbilical separating. Auto sequence initiated. Auto sequence start. Second umbilical separating. T minus 15 seconds. Engine starting to fire. Second umbilical. The first stage ramping up. Engine turbo pump at twice speed. Engines at max thrust. And lift off. Alex Kropochka, Jessica Mirhaza, Ali Al-Mansuri leaping forth from Gagarin's start on their way to the International Space Station. First and second stage in. Thrusters are operating just fine. Copy. Everything is fine on board the Soyuz. We're feeling great. Four strap on boosters lighting up the night sky. So he's delivering 930,000 pounds of thrust with that first stage, the four boosters, and the single core engine punching through the cloud layer there. First stage measures 68 feet in length, 24 feet in diameter, burning liquid fuel for the first two minutes of the flight. Pitch your roll or nominal. Pitch roll referring to the orientation of the vehicle. Nominal, a word you'll hear a lot. That just means everything's proceeding normally. Continuing to get for good first stage uh, indicators from the Soyuz. First and second stage thrusters are operating nominally. They've already well exceeded over 1,100 miles an hour. The next things we're going to be looking for is the escape tower jettison, and then the first stage strap-on boosters separating. Koryov Cross, the first stage strap-on boosters have separated along with that tower. Now the core engine continuing to fire, so use already at an altitude of about 28 statute miles. Everything is nominal on board. So at this point, the Soyuz traveling in excess of 3,300 miles per hour. Four strap-on boosters continuing to descend. The Soyuz power now by that core stage engine. 160 seconds into the flight. Copy. Just we see that the launch shroud jettison is also confirmed. Affirmative. The launch shroud protecting the Soyuz during that initial climb through the atmosphere has been jettisoned. Rocket's altitude already 48 miles in height. At this point, traveling in excess of 4,700 miles per hour. 200 seconds into the flight. Second stage thrusters are operating nominally. So everything continuing to go well with that core stage. The core stage booster of the Soyuz, 56 feet in length, 13 and a half feet in diameter. 
diameter, has a single engine with four fuel chambers that provides between 170,000 and 220,000 pounds of thrust depending on the altitude for its three minutes and 28 seconds of operation. This is going to continue to burn until about four minutes, 43 seconds into the flight, and Soyuz is going to use what's called a hot stage technique. And that hot stage technique will actually see the third stage start to fire while the second stage is still connected as a lattice-like structure between the two stages allowing the exhaust to escape and that allows then the core stage to drop away with the third stage already powering the Soyuz into its initial orbit. Your launch vehicle control system parameters are nominal. Second stage shutdown. Standing by for that third stage ignition and confirmation. Second stage has shut down and separated. The Soyuz now being powered by that third stage engine. Core booster separating at an altitude of about 105 miles in height. It's about 170 kilometers. Now being propelled by the single engine of the third stage. It provides about 67,000 pounds of thrust and is going to burn for a little over four minutes. It will be the final phase of the rocket's journey into orbit. We're still about two and a half minutes away from the shutdown and separation of the third stage. Everything continuing to go smoothly for this ride, taking off right on time at 8.57 a.m. Central Time. Everything looking good so far with the crew. Alex Kropochka, Jessica Mir, and Haza Ali Al-Mansuri inside the spacecraft, well on their way to orbit. 400 seconds into the flight. The spacecraft stable. We're approaching eight minutes since liftoff. At this point, the vehicle traveling at a velocity of over uh, almost 13,500 miles an hour. The third stage separate and fly away. And, Sarmat, congratulations. We're handing you over to Moscow. Sarmat, Moscow. Go ahead. Go ahead, Moscow. How are you feeling? We are standing by for your reporting on the third stage separation. Everything was nominal. Everything great. And just like that, three new crew members now in outer space, the third stage separating, and we did get a good report that all of the solar arrays and antennas have deployed. So a spacecraft in good health now in orbit around planet Earth. Russian cosmonaut Alex Kropochka, NASA astronaut Jessica Mir, and your United Arab Emirates astronaut Haza Ali Al-Mansuri now in outer space and beginning their chase down of the International Space Station. Oversight of the spacecraft now going to be transferring over to the Russian Mission Control Center just outside of Moscow. Rendezvous and docking antennas have deployed, so a spacecraft in good health, along with a crew, now ready to make the six-hour journey towards the space station. During their six-month stay on station, the Expedition 61 crew will undertake a series of spacewalks, installing new lithium-ion batteries on two of the station's solar array power channels. They'll also upgrade and repair the AMS, the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer Science Instrument, which is housed outside the station and studies dark matter and the origins of the universe. Beijing has launched a new meteorological satellite. The Yonhai-102 was flown into a 787-kilometer-high orbit aboard a Long March 2D rocket from the Zhuquan Satellite Launch Center in northwestern China's Ganzhou province. The new spacecraft joins the Yonhai-101 satellite launched in 2016. It'll be used to study the planet's atmospheric, marine and space environments, as well as assist in disaster control and other scientific experiments. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. 
Planet Earth has just experienced its hottest five-year period on record, and man-made global warming is to blame. A new landmark report convened by the Science Advisory Group of the United Nations 2019 Climate Action Summit says there's a glaring and growing gap between global warming targets and reality, with global temperatures since 2015 now on track to be the hottest on record for any five-year period. The report says that current global commitments to cut greenhouse gas emissions would still lead to a global temperature rise of between 2.9 and 3.4 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. A lot of that is due to the Paris Agreement, which allows countries like China and India to keep polluting at ever-increasing rates. To actually limit global warming to 2 degrees Celsius, the report says countries would need to commit to emissions reductions that are triple their current commitments. And if humanity wants to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, those commitments would need to be five times greater. And good luck on trying to get China or India to agree to those terms. A massive iceberg the size of Greater Sydney has carved off the Amri Ice Shelf in Antarctica. The 300 billion ton iceberg, which has been catalogued as D28, broke off between Australia's Davis and Mawson Antarctic Scientific Research Stations. Images of the 1,600 square kilometre iceberg breaking off were captured by the European Space Agency's Copernicus Sentinel-1 satellite. Scientists say the 60-kilometre-long by 30-kilometre-wide iceberg represents the biggest carving off the Amri Ice Shelf in 50 years. Scientists will continue to monitor and track the massive iceberg as it drifts through the Great Southern Ocean as it poses a navigational threat for ships in the vicinity. Of course, it was only two years ago in 2017 that an iceberg measuring some 5,800 square kilometres carved off Antarctica's Larsen Sea Ice Shelf. A new study warns that men with breast cancer are far more likely to die than women. An analysis of 1.9 million patients with breast cancer reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association found males to be 19% more likely to die than their female counterparts. Scientists found the majority of these cases, some 63.3%, are likely to be attributed to clinical factors and under-treatment. The authors say the remaining 36.7% of cases could be related to biological factors, which would suggest that more work is needed to tailor treatments for men with the disease. Paleontologists have unearthed a new Australian pterodactyl species. The discovery, published in the journal Scientific Reports, was made in the Winton Formation in western Queensland. Scientists uncovered parts of a skull and five vertebrae preserved in ironstone. They say the flying reptile would have had an impressive four-metre wingspan. Its unique teeth suggest it's a new and distinct pterodactyl species. Researchers say it apparently survived until about 90 million years ago, some 10 million years longer than other similar pterodactyls. It's been named Ferradraco lentoni. Ferradraco refers to the Latin for iron and for dragon, while lentoni honours a local identity. Interestingly, this pterodactyl's nearest relatives were found in the fossil record of merry old England, making this flying reptile a true ancient globetrotter. Well, it's something cat owners have long known, and now there's scientific evidence to prove that rather than being aloof and independent, cats get very attached to their humans. The findings, reported in the journal Current Biology, show that cats get attached to their human carers in a similar way to infants and dogs. A common way of studying attachment in both human infants and dogs is to put them in a new environment alone for a brief period of time, then bring their adult caregiver into the room. The kids and canines will either relax or be clingy. So researchers tried the same thing with cats and their humans and found exactly the same results. 
Some insecure cats became very clingy when they were reunited with their owners, but the majority were classed as secure and relaxed once they were joined by their owners, about the same proportions as seen in human infants. And that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com, or from your favourite podcast download provider. If you want more Space Time, check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web that I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary, and you can also find us on the Spacetime with Stuart Gary YouTube channel. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 